0: Verse 1 John 5 11, God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. There are two truths that is in this verse. God has given us eternal life, meaning He has given, He has, we now can have eternal life. And we have it because God has given it to us. I'll explain how that is possible. And secondly, He has given us eternal life. In Christ Jesus, meaning eternal life is only in Jesus Christ. No other way that God can give us that we can find eternal life except in Jesus Christ. Question number one, how does God give us anything? We tend to make an assumption that if God wants to give us something, we have it. I want for us to be like a kid and think about it this way. How can God give you anything? How do you receive anything from God? How does that happen? If God is eternal, God's holy, we can't see him, we can't touch him, he can't touch us, or he won't touch, he could, he could if he want to, but because he's holy, then how could he, how can he give us anything? And what is this eternal life? What is it? How, how can he give us something that we can't see? What is this eternal life? And how can we receive anything? from someone you can't see. There are three fundamental ways for us to receive anything from God or for God to give us anything. One, you need to meet God. If someone wants to give you something, you need to meet that person. Well, today, you don't have to if they give you like a text message. You don't have to meet that person. But you still have to be connected to that person somehow. There's a wire in the past. Now there are cell towers. There's some connection has to be made. Secondly, if you want something, you need to ask. You need to ask for it. If you don't ask, you won't have it. And number three is you need to know how to receive it. For example, let's say that you live between two worlds. The old world and the new world. The old world was a landline world and the new world is a cellular world. Let's say you have a grandmother who doesn't have a cell phone All she has is a landline. Can you send her a text? No, it's impossible. For your grandmother to receive something from you, there has to be a connection that's made, that's mutual, that you can send her, meaning she needs to get onto the cellular network, she needs to get a cell phone, and then you can receive the text. Very fundamental thing, so I wanna explain how this happens with between God and us. The reason why God wanted to meet us, he wants to tell us who he is, and tells us what he wants us from us and what his will is. That is the reason why God wants to meet us or that we need to meet God. Because there is a purpose for our lives. Three things that, that God wants. Number one, for you to know God. Number two, for you to trust God. And number three, for you to love God. That's what he wants to communicate with us. So God wants to meet with you so that he can communicate this to you. He can give you this. And for him to meet with you, for you to meet with him, there has to be a place, a mutual place where you and God can meet. To be with God is our eternal purpose. If you don't meet God, where is the place that you will never meet God? I mean, meet his loving side. There will be God in him, but there will be a judgment God in him, a God of judgment in hell. That's where you will meet his judgment. God is everywhere. He is omnipresent, meaning there's nowhere that he isn't. But he manifests himself in different places, in different ways. Do you want to meet a God who is going to judge you? Or you want to meet a God who is going to love you? I leave that up to you. We as humans have always wanted to meet God. Our search for happiness is in God. Life is in God. So we always wanted to meet God. But we don't know how. So what God would do is instead of us looking for God, what God does is that he arranges a place that we can meet with him. And we're going to examine some of these meeting places between God and us. In Genesis chapter 28 verse 17, this is the first time that you will see there's a place where someone meets God. Let me read to you. There are two places where Jacob and God met. And I'm going to explain to you those two places and why they're important. First of all, in Genesis chapter 28, verse 17, and he was afraid, talking about Jacob was running away from Esau and on his way to Laban. And in this place that he was running away from Esau, of course, he was tired, but he got tired and he went to sleep. And as when he was sleeping, he saw this ladder that came from heaven. Now, this is important. Jacob saw a ladder came from heaven. It came down from heaven. This is an indication that God came to him. It wasn't that he somehow made a ladder and then went to God, but God extend, God let down the ladder. Just like, imagine you run and you fall into a hole. There's no ladder in a hole. Someone has to be on the surface, put the ladder down so that you can get out. So the ladder has to come from above. It can't come from where you are. So Jacob, in this dream, he saw there's a ladder that came from heaven and this ladder came down, and although he did not see God, he saw angels ascending and descending, meaning going up and down on this ladder. And when he woke up from this dream, he said, how dreadful is this place. This, this, this place is frightening. He never seen anything like this, and he said, this is none other but the house of God, and this is the gates of heaven. So he interprets this dream, in this dream, he saw this ladder coming down. And he said, this must be, that up there must be the house of God. And this ladder must be the gate to heaven. And he was afraid. So that was the first time in Genesis we see God is arranging. Now he did not show up. God did not show up. All he Jacob saw were the angels going up and down in the ladder. So in this dream, he realized is a place where man... Jacob, human, can meet God. And it has been arranged by God by giving man this extend, well, this ladder. He never met God, but he knew because there was the presence of the angel. Angels are God's messengers. When there are God's messengers, then you know there must be God, even though you don't see him. So what he did was he called this place Bethel. He got up, he took the rock that he used to lay his head. A pool of water and oil over it, and he called. This is the house of God, Bethel. Bethel is house of God. Beth is house. El is God. Bethel is house of God. So that's the first place where God met with man. Now nothing happened. There are no voice. There's no commands. There are no communication exchange. All that happened in that dream was a meeting between God and man. Now let me go into the second story when man needs God. Same man, Jacob, met God again. Chapter 32, verse 24 to 32. Here's another remarkable story. This time, Jacob is on his way back with all of his manservant, maidservant, concubines, wives, children, all sorts of stuff. He was on his way back and he was afraid. Someone came and they wrestled. Um, He couldn't win. It was he put his hand on Jacob's thigh and knocked it out of joint. So he had to give up. And Jacob called this meeting Peniel. Peniel means the face of God. And this is what happened. He said he wrestled with God. Was that God that Jacob wrestled with? It wasn't. It was God's messenger, angel. So Jacob never met God. He met the messenger. But he called that place Peniel. Peniel meaning he met. God's face. This is the face of God. So he also made an altar and called that place Peniel. Um, again, Peniel is face and El is God. And Peniel means face of God. So there's two examples in the Old Testament. One he saw in the dream and one in real life that's wrestling with God and he prevailed. From there, we go into the second story when God meet with man. So the first time we see God meet with man can be in a dream or it can be in real life. The second time when God met with man, the meeting where things went wrong, not God failed. God showed that we cannot meet God in our own terms. The second time God met with man was on Mount Sinai. Moses had a very complicated relationship with the children of Israel. Of course Moses already had a few encounters himself with God, but only alone. This is the first time when God arranged this meeting place between God and the whole people of Israel. And he said that he will meet with them on this mount called Mount Sinai. What happened is this. God told Moses to tell the people, go home and prepare yourself. I want wow. you to think about this. This is what God tell the people to do. God says to prepare yourself, cleanse yourself for three days. Set yourself apart because God is going to come down and God is going to talk to you. So for three days, they prepare themselves. They separate themselves. They sanctify themselves so that they can meet God. Now, I want you to think about this. How much preparation do you take to prepare to meet God? Isn't it tragic that we don't take much preparation to go and meet God? Because we don't really truly believe that we're meeting God, do we? We think we're just having church. We don't really think about it. And even when we are in the presence of God, We take it very lightly, don't we? We do other things, we don't pay attention. When Moses told the people, prepare to meet thy God, they really prepared. They prepared their hearts. And when God showed up and he spoke, they were afraid. And they said, we don't want to hear this voice. It made us tremble. We're afraid. You see, when you really meet God, something, something truly happened within your heart. It makes you tremble makes you truly afraid. And that's what happened when God shows up. So the second time when God meets with man, we said we don't want to hear God's voice because it frightens us. The third time, and this becomes the, the normal way for man to meet God, is God established someone in place of the people. So God established who? Aaron and Moses to be God's book person. So they would communicate with Moses and then Moses would communicate with God. And so now people don't have to meet God directly because they were afraid and God cannot speak to them because they were afraid. They, they had no faith. Fear is antithesis to faith. Remember that. God decides to use a mediator, to use a person in between so that people, he speaks to this man and this man will speak to the people and people would speak to that man, and that man will speak to God. And that became the priest. Moses established what's called the tabernacle of Moses. This tabernacle, the reason why it's called the tabernacle, is because it's temporary. It, it moves with the people. And God shows up. People knew the presence of God. They saw the clouds, and they saw the pillar of fire. Visible, they can see. On the mountain, they can only hear, but when they heard, they were afraid. Through the cloud and through the fire, which they're familiar with, you know, the voice of God makes people afraid. But clouds, people see clouds and they're not too afraid. And they see fire, you know, even though they're afraid, but it's something they're familiar with. So God decided to show them, to present himself to the people through visible means. Because the tabernacle was traveling with the people in the wilderness, it was it was only temporary until they get to the, the bank of the River Jordan. And that's when this temple gets Dissolve. Once they come over on the other side, after the time of King David, his son Solomon, and then they have what's called, Solomon started building a temple and that temple is called the Temple of Solomon. And that's in Second Samuel 7.13. That's when the place where God dwelt continually. Now they can point to the east. Remember when Daniel was praying? He prayed toward Jerusalem. There is a particular place where God is. So there's a geographical place where God dwelt. And people can Think about that place and actually look at that place and go there. The tabernacle of Moses was traveling around. Solomon's temple was in a place it was at Jerusalem. It's on that hilltop, and they can point there and say, "That's where God is." Okay, so now God takes a residence. When people want to meet God, in the time of Solomon, they would go to that temple. But can they enter into the temple? No. The temple is serviced by the Levitical priesthood. One of the 12 tribes of Israel is separated to the service of God alone. They don't work. They don't have inheritance. They work in the temple so that when people want to meet God, the Levi are supposed to enable this meeting place to happen. And how often do people meet with God? They meet with God once every year on the Day of Atonement. you have any requests? you have any sin, you wait until that day where all these things are offered to God by the high priest who goes into the place of God to offer sacrifices, incense, they prepare themselves and that's where God meet them. There's a temple, in the temple there's a holy place and there's inside the holy place there is a most holy place and in that most holy place, the Ark of Covenant. What's on the Ark of Covenant The mercy seat in the middle of the cherubim. The mercy seat is where God shows up. And when God shows up, the place, the most holy place filled with his light, his glory. That is when man meets God. So the closest we ever come to meeting God is seeing his glory expressed in terms of light. So we never actually see any figure of God. The light of God fills this holy place. And that happens between the cherubim in the most holy place. So that's how we meet God. And that's how God communicates. Give us, grant us things, and receive things from us. The question that you have now is, how does God meet with us now? What happened to the ark? Some people said that it probably were carried away before the destruction of the temple by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. A year before that, they probably took the ark and hid it. Some people said they took the Ark and went down to Ethiopia. Remember Ethiopia? Queen from Ethiopia, the queen of Sheba, she went there. So there was some kind of relationship there with Solomon. That was one of the hypotheses. not really true. All we know is the Ark Covenant is lost. And the Ark Covenant even, it was not only there at the time of the Temple of Solomon, but it was there during Moses' time. It was there, in there, at the Tabernacle of Moses as well. When the Ark is gone, what happened to the Temple? There's no presence of God, so there's no need for a Temple. Because the Temple is only there if God is there. If God isn't there, then the Temple got destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. What happened to the Temple after the Temple was destroyed? It was rebuilt by a man. King Herod built the second temple. And what happened to the second temple? It it got destroyed 70 AD. No temple. So now the temple is gone. Does that mean the presence of God is gone? Where do God meet with people now? I want to just get down to the kids answer today. We need to really be able to explain where can God meet with us and talk with us, share his will to us. The temple is gone. The ark is gone. Let me tell you why the temple doesn't work. The temple doesn't work because God did not want it. God did not want that to be how He communicate and meet with man. Remember who wanted, who really, really wanted to build the temple, and God didn't want him to build it. It was King David because he really have a heart for God. God says, "I will honor your love for me by allowing your son, whose hands is not tainted with blood, to build a temple." But that temple doesn't last. God wants an eternal temple. He wants a place that cannot be destroyed. What can be destroyed? Everything that we make can be destroyed. If you can make it, we can destroy it. Anything that we can't make can't be destroyed. Because if you can build something, you can destroy it. The temple was made by human hands, and therefore it will be destroyed by human hands. God has an eternal temple. And I'll show you what that temple is. Let's go all the way back to the time of Moses, he was a shepherd boy, or a shepherd man now, actually, he's quite old, he's 80 years old, not boy anymore. He's 80 years old, he's in the wilderness, and he's wandering around, probably chasing after some sheep, and what did he find? A burning bush. And in that burning bush, he was coming close to something that he saw was miraculous, it was a bush that was burning, and he approached to it, and there was a voice coming out from the bush and says... Take off your shoes for the place where you stand is holy ground. Okay, so we know that story. But well, the bush was God speaking through this burning bush. He wants Moses to go back to Egypt and to deliver the people out of bondage for a purpose. What is that purpose? To get them out of Egypt so that they can do one thing. To worship God. So what do you think God's will is for mankind? to worship God. God wants to take us out of bondage into a place where we can worship God. That is God's plan. That has always been God's plan, is so that we can worship God, so that we can find life in worship. That is God's plan. The reason why you're in bondage? Because you're not worshiping God. The reason why you're sad? Because you're not worshiping God. Why are there fighting in your family? Why are there always a need that cannot be met? Why you work and it seems like you are slaving, just like people in Egypt? And you never arrive at anything. There's no promise for you. Why is it? Because we are not worshiping God. We're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. We were designed to worship God. And if you're not worshiping God, then you are in bondage. Someone is preventing you from doing what you're supposed to do. So if you're not worshiping God, then, of course, your life is going to be miserable. If you're not worshiping God, then, of course, there's going to be chaos. There's going to be fighting, anxieties, depression that's happening wherever you're at if you're not worshiping God. So God raised up this man, Moses, and to tell him to go back into that land of captivity and to deliver the people so that they can worship God. That is God's intention for us to worship God. God shows up and talks to Moses. There's this physical tree, a bush, and it was burning and was speaking to Moses. It was real. It was not this voice in heaven. It was real. God was there. How is that possible today? Let my people go so that they can serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. Now, worship is service to God. I'm going to go to Pharaoh and I'm going to say, let my people go. And he's going to say, in whose name should I let your people? Who are you? So Moses says, so who should I tell him when he said, who's your God? And God answered Moses and he said this, tell him that I am who I am. I am who I am. Those four letters there are the initials for the word, I am who I am. So that when Moses came to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said, who is your God? What he meant is that, I don't know your God. Doesn't mean that he, he's an atheist. Pharaoh is not an atheist. Which one is your God? In, in a way, he said, God is God. Is the God. He is the only God. That's what he said. When God gave Moses his name, Moses knew how to pronounce God's name. But throughout the tradition, what happened is when they come to God's name, they don't want to say God's name out of reference to him. So what they did was they take the initial of first word and they put it together. Right? It's like an acronym. There's, there are no vowels. They can't pronounce it. And so they use a word to replace it. And they call that word Adonai. And that is where we get the word Lord from. What's significant about this is Not only, as we have learned, the temple got destroyed, the ark got destroyed or missing, but the name of God is also missing. They cannot say the name of God. No one knows how to say the name of God anymore. Protestant tradition, we put vows in there, we try to say it. That is dishonoring to what's been long established, and we should not try to say that. We should not try to pronounce that name that they hold high reverence to. And we call the Lord, the Lord. And this is significant. The word Adonai, the word Lord, is very significant because what I'm going to tell you next. When Moses went to Pharaoh and he said, the Lord wants you to let his people go so that they may serve him. And Pharaoh said, no. Well, the Lord began to show Pharaoh some of the things that he was capable of. God showed that he was not only God, but he was powerful and that he would intervene. God intervenes in our lives. This is not a God who hands off like the deists. God is just a concept. You get a hold of God through your mind's eye. No, the God that we serve is the God who actually intervenes in our lives. So if you think that you can meet God by just imagining God, we need to go back and start reestablishing our relationship. With the true God, because God, the God that we serve, the God of the Bible, is the God who intervenes in our daily lives. He's not just a figment of your imagination. You don't just think that you believe and that's enough. There has to be a meeting place, a real place, a meeting between you and God. There has to be, because that's who He is. He never changed. Everything else changed, but He does not change. Now, Israel has lost both the temple, the place, and the name of God. They don't know how to pronounce the name of God anymore, and there's no temple of God. They are waiting for the time when both of those things will be will be restored. Both the name of God will be restored and the temple of God will be restored. Here comes a new age, a new time, and that is the time of the promised Messiah. The restoration of God's name, this is where I want to lead you to, is when the Lord Jesus Christ, Philippians chapter 2, Verse 9 and 11. Let me read to you how God restores his name through Jesus Christ. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him. Talking about Jesus here. And given him a name which is above every other name. Think about this. If the name of God was so highly esteemed, when Moses, who didn't know who God was, went to Pharaoh and in the name of this God did these miracles, just by calling on the name of God, This name is very powerful, and it was lost. In Philippians chapter 2, what is going on here? God has raised up, restored this name. And he said that he's given this name above every other name. It has to be every other name that ever existed in history. So we believe that this name has been restored. The name of God has been restored. And what is that name? We continue to read. That at the name of Jesus that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This name has been restored. What is that name? It is the name of Jesus. Above in heaven the angels on earth Mankind, animals, if they can speak, and under the earth, even the demon. Every creature call on this name, Lord. He is Lord of all. This is why you should never take the name of God in vain. And the name of God is the name of Jesus Christ. This is why we don't laugh, we don't joke about this name. Because this name carries with it power to save and Judgment. It is a powerful name. God has restored his name in Jesus Christ. Of course, the nation of Israel doesn't accept this. There are Jews who are believers in Christ. Well, Jesus was a Jew, right? All the disciples were Jewish. The Jews will inherit the kingdom of God in due time. For those that are still waiting for the promised Messiah, they missed Jesus. Jesus is that restoration. So the two things that were missing in the meeting place between man and God the first is the actual place, which is the temple. And the second thing that was missing was the name of God. The name was restored in Jesus Christ. What is left to be restored? The temple. Now let me walk you through how this, the temple is restored. The first and second temple was destroyed. It was built by man, so it get destroyed by man. The holy temple of God is not built with hands. The holy temple of God came down from heaven. In Hebrews chapter 9 verse 11 but Christ come a high priest of a good thing to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle tabernacle is is temple not made with hands that is to say not of this building so God restored this temple and it came from heaven it was not built by human hand. in fact what did Jesus say he said destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again What is he talking about? Is he talking about the temple at the time of Jesus, the Herod temple was still standing. So they thinking about that temple, but Jesus was not talking about that temple. Who's he talking about? He's talking about himself. This temple came from God. This new meeting place that came from God, the place that came from heaven to us, this holy temple that's not made with human hands, that we can meet God in Christ. So you see the pictures start coming together. And yes, The temple had to be destroyed because there is the new temple now. And that new temple had to be destroyed. Why do you think Jesus Christ has to die? To show you that nothing can destroy the temple that came from heaven. Not even the devil cannot destroy the temple that comes from heaven. Let alone men. How can men destroy the temple that came from heaven? Men can destroy the Herod's temple. Men can destroy... The temple of Solomon was built magnificently but it could be destroyed. Men can put up and put away the tabernacle. The ark was there, it was beautiful, but then it was gone. It was the name of God was given and then it got lost. But now God restored all of these things in whom? Jesus Christ. And he said, destroy this body, destroy this temple, and you will see what happens. In 3 days the temple get restored. Nothing can destroy the temple that comes from God. Because this is the place that God has established so that we can meet God in Christ. We can meet God in Christ. This temple is the temple that is forever. The temple of God is restored, and that is Jesus Christ. The name of God is restored, and that is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Both of these things have been restored for us. One last thing. The worship of God will be restored. Remember, Moses went to Egypt to get the people out of bondage so that they can Serve the Lord so that they can worship God. Jesus, this temple that came from God, the name that get restored, he came to us so that he can restore true worship, the right worship. John 4, 21. Let's turn there. Jesus spoke to the woman at the well, and this is what he said. The hour cometh, and now is, when true worshipers, and here's the key. God is looking. God is searching for true worshipers. This is what God's looking for. True worshiper. Shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such worship. And he said, not on that mountain. The Samaritans worship God in that mountain. Not in Jerusalem, because that's going to be destroyed. But here is the new temple. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. God will restore true worship in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in places that we built. Not in this building. But in Christ not in the places where it can be destroyed, but in places where it can never be destroyed, and that is in Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is the instrument in which we come together. The Holy Spirit is the way in which we worship God in spirit and in truth. Jesus Christ is the temple, and the Holy Spirit is how we come together and worship God. Go back to my initial question, how do we receive this life that is promised by God? Yeah, this life that is in Christ, this eternal life. Christ has restored both his name, God's name, and the temple. And now, Jesus Christ, that temple, was destroyed, was resurrected. So, we say, good. Jesus Christ is now the temple. Let's go to Jesus Christ and worship. Well, here's a little problem. Where's Jesus now? How do we meet Jesus. How do we come into this temple to worship God? We all know that God is omnipresent, meaning He's everywhere. There's nowhere that God isn't. But we also know that Jesus is God. Is that true? Yes. If Jesus is God and Jesus is also human, is He not? Is human omnipresent? Can you be at more than one place at a time? Nope. So how is God in Jesus omnipresent? So where is Jesus? How come I can't see his body? We'll we'll get to explain some of these things. This is a fascinating subject for for us to think about because when we partake of the Lord's body, where is he? Shouldn't he be here? I really want you to think about this concept as a child because it really is the reality of what we know. We tend to put these into concept and then sooner or later it becomes not real anymore. I, I want it to be real. I want your faith to be real. What Jesus Christ did, the only person who can ever come up with this is God. We can't come up with this. It's so brilliant. So this is how he did it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? Now Paul is talking to the church. What Jesus Christ has done through his resurrection caused that body of Christ, the temple of Christ, to be in us. We are now the temple of God through the Holy Spirit. So you say, we're Jesus Christ. He is in us. We are the temple of Christ. This is the power of his resurrection. We are the temple of Christ. Now think about this. What are you doing to Christ's temple? Are we defiling Christ's temple? Are we living a life that's honorable, to Christ being present in us and the Holy Spirit is in us. See, the Apostle Paul said, Grieve not the Holy Spirit which is given to you. What are we doing with our lives? If we are the temple of God, is the temple of God a holy place? Is our life holy? That's a question that we need to ask ourselves because we are the temple of God. This is where God communicates with us. This is where we meet God. Now, the temple of God is in us. We can meet God through private study and meditation. When you, by yourself, you open up the Bible and you study, you learn about God. Knowledge, when you know something, it becomes real. Anything that you know becomes real. For example, let's say Nehemi, he wants to be a doctor. He got to learn. He got to learn. What you learn, you become what you learn. Knowledge is what makes you what you will be. That's what knowledge does. Nora, when she's a baby, you give her a little rattle, right, you you shake it in front of her. Does she know what it is? She blinks, you open her eye, and it's a brand new rattle, isn't it? She has no concept of the rattle that was there and the rattle that before, after her. she blinked. It's just—it's a different, brand new, so she smiled. And you can shake it like a hundred times. She's like, yeah, new rattle every time. Until she learns. It has that color, it has that shape, it has that sound. Knowledge. And then she go, I uh, can't fool me with that. I want something new. Yeah, I want something new now. I know that's the old one. I want something new. You see, knowledge shapes our world, shapes who we are. So if you're not studying, if you're not learning, if you're not cultivating yourself in God, in the Word of God, then how can you meet God? You don't know how to get to God. You know When God speaks to you, I don't know what that means. So knowledge in your private life, you meet God by studying God's word, by meditating God's word. And then secondly, there is the next stage in your life in God, in meeting God, is that when we come together in a corporate setting. When you are coming together, you become the body of Jesus Christ. The church is called the body of Christ. We individual are called the temple in which Christ dwells. When we come together, we become the body of Jesus Christ. God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. If Jesus Christ is the head and the body is the church, then how can we get eternal life? We get eternal life in the body of Jesus Christ. If you are not part of the church, the corporate worship of God, you're not in the body of Jesus Christ. If you're not in the body of Jesus Christ, you have no eternal life. Now, when I say you have no eternal life, I mean you have no measure because Jesus says that I will give you life and I will give you life more abundantly. There's a measure. Think about anyone who hasn't been to church for like maybe a year. What is their spiritual life like? Think about people who haven't been to church in 10 years. Do they even have a spiritual life? Probably not. Now think about someone have been in church, or when I say church, in a corporate body for multiple days consecutively. What do they look like? Remember camp where you were there multiple days in a row? What happened? Some life there. When we come together, life comes out when we come together. It's a real thing. God meets with us when we come together because none of us, none of the temples have light all the time. Sometimes we are hot and sometimes we're cold. When we come together, we share in that life. The more we come together, the more life we share in each other. And that's why the body of Jesus Christ is the church. That's why going and being part of the church brings life to you. That's what it means by having a spiritual life. For a purpose. We've been given life for a purpose. And that purpose is to give life. We've been given life so that we can give life. Now, when you come together in the body of Christ, this is the thing that we do. The Lord Jesus Christ says that when you come together, remember Jesus Christ in the communion, in the Eucharist. In that communion, Jesus Christ gave us his body and we share his body among us. It symbolizes the life of Jesus Christ gives to us, but it's more than just symbolizes. It's actually giving us life. When we have communion, that is why you need to be baptized so that you can become part of the body of Jesus Christ, so that you can partake in the communion, so that you can have life, and that you can have life more abundantly. See, the people who don't take communion don't participate in this life. When you receive of the flesh of Jesus Christ, remember this. Share his death until he comes. So when we share in Christ's life, we have a mandate. And that mandate is to tell people about Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And that's what the body of Christ is about. People who believe in Christ's resurrection, we partake, participate in this resurrection, and then we tell other people about this resurrection. So that's how you get eternal life. That's how we share in this life.